0: hello everyone and welcome back for this edition of the sports pro stream time podcast my name is chris stone i'm the community lead here at sports pro joined as always by our ceo nick meacham but we're also joined by a special guest this week uh minal moda at ampere analysis is joining us Manal. You're out in L.A., California, enjoying life, you know, how's it going out there?
1: Yeah, it's going really well. We got to sample some of the sport here. We went to the Dodgers game on Friday night, and I have bashed a baseball a lot in the past, but I had such a good night, so it's going well. (laughs)
0: I've always tried to compare baseball for the British audience to be sort of similar to like a T20 in cricket, you know, it's really more of a social environment. You know, there's some food, there's some booze. You don't necessarily sit there watching the whole game. It's really more of a sp- social outing than anything else.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was definitely like that. It was like a really nice, like family friendly environment. We got some fireworks. I got to see some home runs and the Dodgers won in the final innings. It was so good.
2: How longs a match typically last? Though it's it's a few hours, isn't it? It's like five or six.
1: Well, ours it? was like three and a half, so it wasn't too bad. It goes by really quickly, though. Oh, okay,
2: well, if it goes go by pretty quickly, I guess if there's a lot of strikes and a lot of hits, I'd imagine. Otherwise, it could get a bit slow. I've seen some. I've seen quite some funny videos on YouTube of people <laughs> falling asleep. I'm talking. I'm talking baseball down here, but I'm hoping to get baseball on the show in the coming in the coming <laughs> weeks. So, uh, yeah, I'm 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 a I'm a, I'm a i am i am 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 could be easily converted fan at some stage.
0: We'll get you to a game, Nick. But what we do need to check out, uh, if you haven't seen it, for anybody listening to the podcast, go check out the Savannah Bananas. Uh, They are a minor league baseball team, so it's the equivalent to maybe, say, like League 1 or League 2 in terms of uh, the EFL over here in the U.K. But go check it out, the Savannah Bananas. It will have you committed to baseball. It's got to be a number one priority for everybody. (laughs) <laughs> I will I will back him. Go go check it out. It's something else. But
2: I'll keep it as cryptic so people can actually have something
0: to do while uh, listening into Awesome. It. Well Thank you, Manal, for joining us. Uh, this week at SportsPro, it is our Women's Sports Week, which is going to be covered across all of our editorials. so please make sure if you haven't seen all the different content that's being pushed out across our channels, that you do check that out. Uh, for us at SportsPro, this is one of the things we're really excited to talk about with you, Manal, is you recently wrote a piece uh, for SportsPro, and I would, again, recommend anyone that hasn't checked that out to so make sure you go to the website and check out the piece. But Manal, we've brought you on here today because we want to talk about, specifically, the growth of women's sports. Um, so so for us, you know, maybe a good place to start, just a brief introduction to yourself and sort of some of the research you did around this topic before we kind of really jump into it.
1: Yeah, of course. So um I work at Ampere Analysis. I've been there for about three years, but actually we've worked in sport for over a decade now across everything from media rights through to sponsorship, but all purely like been in market research. Um And actually women's sport became quite a big passion point of mine when I was at Nielsen. Um I saw that. There just wasn't any research going into it at that point. We have so much research into men's sport, what the fandom is, what the demographics are, but there just wasn't that type of data available. Um, So I remember we set up this tracker when I was at Nielsen to really start understanding women's sports fans. And just from that first instance, there is so much there to uncover Like we'll get into some of this later on, but there are so many myths that you can debunk around women's sports fans just with a bit of data. Um, so it's amazing what a little bit of investment can do and just from a personal perspective it's been amazing to see women's sport grow over the last five six seven years like yeah it's just been amazing to watch that happen I know it's been from quite a low bar but just that level of professionalism that's now going through the sport and just the interest levels that are coming along with it we saw it with that women's sport trust data that was released earlier this year that 15 million people in the UK watched women's sport in the first quarter of this year. And you would imagine with the Euros, that's going to grow even further.
2: Yeah, I think that's, I remember seeing that study as well, Manal, and that was something I think was one of the, the first true eye-opening moments, I guess, you know, you can see what's been happening with women's sports over the years, but when you get the data to back up that sense or you, the, what you are seeing from the outside in, I suppose, in some instances, uh, there was some data I remember also hearing uh, from the Women's Sports Trust around consumption around uh, i think it was sky sports and their netball coverage on youtube and you know obviously netball being one of uh, uh, largely a women's sport most of the, the majority of consumers are actually males who are consuming it and it just showed as a reiteration i suppose to people that there's a generalization and an expectation i suppose that sports women's sports will be many interested for, for women's audiences, but it, it absolutely has mainstream appeal now. Um and probably would have earlier if it was given more light uh and uh, more time in, in the airways but rather than looking backwards let's uh let's look forwards.
0: Yeah. Perhaps looking before we go forward, it might be a good place just to set the scene in terms of where we're at today now in July twenty twenty two manau in terms of you know looking at it from what are the levels of interest right now. You sort of mentioned that the, the Uh, the research done by the Women's Sports Trust, but where are we perhaps on on a more general level in terms of the overall popularity of women's sports?
1: I think it obviously varies market by market. You have some where women's sport is a bit more mature. So the UK, Australia, the US, where maybe they started professionalizing it a bit sooner. So actually interest levels there are quite high. Obviously, broadcast strategies come into play with that, because those markets have quite a lot of women's sport and free-to-air. But from our sports consumer study that we do, um, what we found is interest levels in countries like Germany, it's still pretty low. So there's work to be done in some countries, but in others, it's flourishing really nicely.
0: No, that's excellent. And interestingly, Nick and I uh, were briefly touching on free-to-air. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later in terms of some of those strategies. But You know, you say it's growing. Are there any other trends that, you know, you're identifying at the moment beyond sort of just geographical trends?
1: I think away from just the interest levels growing, we're seeing loads of trends for women's sport on the business side of it as well. So over the last few years, we've seen lots of rights holders begin to start uncoupling the rights. So traditionally, um, women's competitions were kind of just thrown in with the men's. It was like, oh, here you go. Here's an add on for free. But now what rights holders like FIFA and UEFA are doing is they're selling their competitions, the women's competitions on their own merits. And I think that is just going to help grow the game even further, because all of a sudden, all the investment that's going into it can be pumped straight back into women's sport. It's not going to be like, okay, they can have a small percentage of what the men are getting. And that investment is really how we're going to start closing the gap with men's sport and it gives broadcasters that opportunity to say actually we might not want to take your men's rights but we want to adjust invest solely in the women's rights as well
2: and chris i think there's another way to look at it as well as a bit of a i i'd call it mutual accountability so now both historically it was thrown in together possibly for both sides looking at it as it's easier to do it that way and to move forward but by doing that, no one, neither side, both the rights owner and the broadcaster, may have been giving it the the support it deserves uh, and and needed to prosper. So, both by doing that, they're both holding themselves accountable to the the assets that are being uh, negotiated and uh, agreed upon in in those deals. And I think again, it's just that that's becoming a defined channel for everyone involved has made such a transformation, and we've seen the numbers pretty quickly. Skyrocket in terms of level of in- levels of interest and and audience consumption, even predating obviously the pandemic. I remember when we were uh, at SportsPro, we were we were ramp- planning on we were ramping up our coverage on women's sports uh, quite heavily, and then planning a whole range of additional layers of content to be published around this and additional channels. And obviously, the pandemic threw everything into a mix where we had to wait a little bit. Uh, and then, obviously, even through the pandemic, we did see women's sports miss out on some opportunities where men's sports on the professional side was given uh, prioritization to get up and running again but it now feels like we've gone through all of that and now we're heading in the right direction. Actually
1: just building on that point about what you were saying about the broadcasters and the um, rights holders being given that responsibility actually makes it more attractive for sponsors as well because it shows them that this is going to be held up a bit more. They're going to get more visibility. There's more importance being placed on it. So it makes brands, in theory, want to get more involved with the competition. So again, it's just another way of funneling more money into the grassroots of it.
2: Absolutely. And I, I just, I would say, adding to that, I think I in a great example of this, I don't have the notes in front of me, but I think it was Visa made the first big landmark move in this space where they committed to, I think it was an equal uh, spend on on sponsorship for both the men's and women's uh, versions of uh, the relationship with FIFA, if I remember correctly, um, for the World Cups. If I, yeah, I someone might hold me to account that, but I'm pretty sure it was that that move, and that was just the first instance that we not just saw a brand connecting with it, but committing money at the same levels, as well as brand, which was a really significant uh, moment. And it obviously paid dividends for Visa. You know, the, the sentiment around that initiative was really strong right from point zero. And I'm, no doubt they've been rewarded for, for that that initiative just from the the messaging, storytelling and PR alone, let alone what the, you know, no doubt the results will be um, as that relationship and partnership plays out.
1: I think um, sometimes we can be quite insular within our own industry because we obviously know all of this stuff. We read all of this stuff. I saw an article last week that I think it was like two-thirds of fans in the UK cannot name a women's sponsor, a sports sponsor. So we know that all these brands are doing these amazing things, but actually they need to start spending on activation in order to get that out there um, and start promoting themselves because studies like that show that, whilst we think it's amazing and we know all of this is happening, actually your lay fans might not be seeing that. So there might be a bit of an activation fee gap um, that needs to be maybe um, made smaller in order to make sure that people know that they're sponsoring these competitions.
0: No, that's a really great point. And I think it's something we talk about sports more generally. Like we probably think about things a lot more than the average fan, but I think one of the things that was really interesting in the article you wrote You know, not just for broadcasters, but also for sponsors. There's some really interesting data you guys found about who's watching women's sports and that there's actually a really big opportunity presented there in terms of who those audience members are, in terms of whether that's their gender, their age, or more importantly, from a sports perspective, possibly sort of what their expendable income is as well.
1: Yeah, it kind of picks up on what Nick was saying earlier. So that prevailing myth that it is only women who watch women's sport, actually, it's so far from the truth, it's unbelievable. Like our consumer data shows that nearly 60% of women's sports fans are men. And if we look at, say, the UK, for an example, and look at football fans, women's football fans, they skew younger. So you have an opportunity to grab that really hard to reach demographic and like you said Chris they're more affluent so they have more disposable income which it might sound a little bit crude but in this cost of living crisis if you're a brand or if you're a broadcaster and you're trying to sell this audience to either advertisers or as a brand get involved that affluent side of it is going to become quite important
2: Definitely, and I think just it, it, we've been talking a little bit about sponsorship now and deals, and obviously we, typically we focus on the streaming and digital side, but actually it's a really important part of this mix when you're looking at, uh, look, we've talked about the big the big guys and the big deals that we, uh, that exist, but actually for the t- tier twos and tier threes, they don't often get the opportunity for mass reach through big public broadcasters or through big pay TV channels, so they need to look at sponsorship and the data now that we they can use from that the consumption, whether it might be happening on a YouTube or wherever, or a direct-to-consumer platform, can be used and converted into revenue, hard revenue, because of the storytelling and the insight they can produce about audiences. That, that was pretty immature five to ten years ago, and now we're getting to a place where that can create a really great story that can be then presented to, to sponsors to buy into and be a core revenue driver for women's sports, where historically, it was the whole chicken and egg situation, right, where you needed the audience first to, to, to be able to turn that into anything. Now, you, the data can supplement that or change that uh, sort of problem that used to, used to exist.
1: I remember this story from a few years ago that um, Man City, when they first created season tickets for their women's um, team, they said that actually the majority of people who were taking up those season tickets were actually the men's season ticket fans. So the crossover in the audiences was huge. And so you, you're, then you can have a brand say, look, you can actually target our men's audience through the women's game. Instead, if you don't want to spend all that money and get involved with the men's side of it, it's actually a really huge crossover and you're going to be targeting a similar audience. But what they found is the men who are, or the, the people who were season ticket holders for the men's team, they were actually bringing their families along to the women's games. So it, it's that, it is a different audience, but at the core of it, you still have the traditional sport fan, but maybe it's just somewhere where they feel a bit more comfortable bringing their daughters or their sons to, because it's just a bit more of a welcoming environment. I don't know if you guys have managed to get to a WSL game or anything this season. It's just a bit more friendly.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've had my experiences at football matches where I've even said to myself, um, I've got a couple of young kids and I'm like, I'm not sure I'm ready to bring them here for quite a while because of my experience. i not that I'm generalising, just it's my own personal experience. But I think if I was going to bring them to a football match, I would I would much more likely look to uh, the WSL first um, because of that, I guess, more inclusiveness environment that is ready built for, for families and it's... I think just yeah, just going to be a different scenario for, for people to consider. Whereas at the moment, that hyper, not just the fandom, but the the cost that goes behind it, let alone the the issues with atmosphere, you can have at certain grounds. It just doesn't make much sense if you're uh, looking from a family perspective to to look look elsewhere. Then things like the WSL or other other great women's sports properties that do exist.
0: One of the topics Nick and I have talked about a bit, and in some of the conversations we've had with individuals is there's always the Gen Z conversation. We we can't decode them yet. We can't figure them out. Um, they just you know buck all the trends. But is women's sports perhaps? The way to get into that you know you mentioned that there's a there's a higher affinity amongst younger fans so as you sort of alluded to with sponsorship for women's sports as opposed to men's sports it's a it's a cheaper way to get the same audience you're looking after is women's sports potentially an opportunity to tap into gen z just based on what they are they're more inclined to, to view into is that possibly something that brands or broadcasters could could try to is that is that part of the the roadmap?
1: I think potentially. So on the one hand, yes, because I think women's sport offers like a level of authenticity that I just don't think men's sport does anymore. Like, And we know from so much research into marketing that Gen Z want authenticity, they want storytelling. So you can get, with through women's sport, so much access to athletes. They're, they're not going to be really well media trained, so you can probably get a lot closer to them. With so many of the WSL matches, a lot of the players... Um, stick around afterwards and they talk to the fans for ages. So like that level of closeness, um, I just don't think can be replicated in men's sports. And if they're able to maintain current distribution strategies, i.e. keep it on free to air, I think that will be a really, really big thing. Having said that, I do think that the Gen Z problem is probably more deep rooted than just availability and just around authenticity. Like, Like with everybody, we are being absolutely bombarded with content left right and center and that's not just sport it's tv it's movies it's gaming it's, it's everything in entertainment and then you need to try and go out and actually socialize as well so that finite number of hours in the day is so hard for everybody to get a piece of but I think that there are definite if I was a brand or if I was a broadcaster there are things about women's sport that I think, could tap into this audience at the moment better than some men's sport can.
0: Yeah, I think you mentioned that, you know, one of the issues with... We've talked about the professional sports, it gets to the point it's so commercialized and, you know, we we had... Manchester United come in and I know one of the big feedbacks for that is it's clear the players all have some professional PR team taking care of all their social media. There's no authenticity to it. Um, The Super League is just seen as a move to, to grab as much cash as possible. What happens to the local fans, local teams? I think for me, being an American, being an outsider like That's one of the things I've appreciated is there's still that local sense of community that's around football. And I think to your point, that's ultimately for me, at least why I'm a big fan of sports, like the teams I root for, there's that sense of community there. And I think absolutely with the women's sports side things, because these aren't mega millionaires, they don't feel unapproachable. Like I don't really have anything in common with Ronaldo or Messi. They're just so far above me, like sort of status where for the time being, it feels like the women's league it's it's still that playing for the love of the game which you know you look at you know the opening game of the euro sixty eight thousand people um at wembley i think there's a large portion of that there's this that relatability there's the, they're playing for the the badge i believe is what they say over here they're playing for the pride of the badge on their shirt or whatever um you get that sense that certainly comes through
1: yeah i think also you can see so many of like the struggles that they're going through that's relatable like they're trying, they're still trying to fight for equal pay. It's what every woman can relate to, like their struggles are our struggles. Whereas like you said, Messi and Ronaldo's struggles are not our struggles. They're two very, very different things. Um, So yeah, I think there is a really, really big part of it. And when you hear the stories of like, some of these footballers who had to hold down part-time jobs because it wasn't professional yet, and they couldn't afford to put everything into it, you're like, yeah, I can completely understand that. We all know people who've had to hold down two or three jobs in order just to make ends meet. And it just gives you a sense of these people want to really, really want to be there. And I think sometimes when you get to the higher, highest positions in men's football, I think in particular where the money is so insane, you lose some of that connection with those players and they go behind that PR machine and all of a sudden you don't really know who they are as a person. And that's where that lack of connection, I think, especially with Gen Z, you lose them a little bit.
0: Yeah, for sure. So one of the things we've touched on a little bit here, and I suppose we can kind of start to dive into a little bit, we were talking about free to air or simply the the, the broadcast strategy, the, the distribution strategy in terms of how you get it out there. Because I think what we probably the biggest issue is, is there's just not been any airtime for it. And I think part of one of the myths that you kind of touched on is it's not that people don't want to watch it. It's just never been on air for people to actually view to begin with. So, you know, in your article, you talk on a couple of different uh, case studies, but perhaps, you know, we can kind of deep dive into to some of those strategies, why it's so important for free to air to be um, a part of that equation and, You know, I don't know which one we want to dive into first. We can look at the UEFA, DAZN, YouTube, or WSL, Sky Sports, BBC. I don't know if any one of those particular we want to dive into to start off with.
1: I don't mind. Maybe we can go for the DAZN, um, YouTube, and UEFA because it's the first time we've ever had like a global distribution deal, which in itself is pretty, it's a pretty huge landmark deal. Um, And it follows on quite nicely from our Gen Z conversation because if you're trying to engage them, why not use a platform that we know that they already use? Like the Sky and BBC deal, we know that that, that generation is moving away from linear. So if you're going to engage them, engage them online. Um, and that um, content that Zone and YouTube have put out this year has been incredible. Like, you know, the fact that you can watch any match or any round and it's just there it, and and they have produced some incredible games as well, like Barcelona. I I didn't I don't think I'd ever watched a women's Barcelona game before, and then this season I've watched so many. And the final was just amazing. It's it just kind of shows that if you put the content somewhere where people can access it, and you put enough marketing spend behind it, the eyeballs will come and it will follow. So that's where I think free to air is really important. While these sports are in their infancy, they need to make sure. They don't just take the money from pay TV and put it behind a paywall or OTT services like DAZN because yes, you'll get more money, but if you don't have that audience, you're missing a trick straight from the off and then all your other revenue streams and all the money that you need to be able to invest into your grassroots isn't going to come. So I think these competitions going down, are, I suppose, a mixed distribution strategy to begin with, which gives them a good balance of both money and eyeballs. I think it's the best way to start off at least. We know that this will go behind a paywall with zone in the next couple of years because obviously they want to drive subscriptions. But for the for the first two or three years, YouTube is just gonna be a fantastic partner for them on this.
2: And a reminder, um, Crispy, some of the numbers we talked about a few weeks ago in the uh in one of the pods where we covered YouTube's strategy and they they talked about some of those those numbers and I'm uh, just Quickly, furiously tried to find my notes to, to, to jump into them, but the numbers I had here were that I had 12.3 million viewers, unique viewers over the past three months on YouTube's platforms, um, which was a growth of 43%, an audience, and search on the platforms was up six times since they uh, since they started the partnership. And so those signs, again, I mean, I, I see YouTube, and I've said this a number of times, I see YouTube as effectively a pseudo-free-to-air, uh, the new wave of free-to-air platform in terms of its reach and discoverability, it's arguably better. And particularly when you have YouTube who can supercharge any piece of content they wanted to be more discoverable, uh, which is something that they do do for some of these partnerships. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a really important what you got? An important relationship, I think, just to see where it gets to. It's quite unique, and from what I understand, uh, from what I understand, which I'm not sure this is definitive, but I believe UEFA pays for the production of the broadcast. Hence, why it's one of those deals that everyone's very positive about. And when everyone's so positive about it, you know, it's a bit nuanced on the on the deal side. But yeah, I think inevitably, Dizone will start putting stuff behind the paywall to Manal's point. Whether it's everything, whether it's just part of it, I guess we're, we'll be dependent on what the appetites like. And you know, Dizone will want they coming into this with a view that they can make this count down the line, Um and YouTube. YouTube wins in everything right in, in this in terms of they just want more content on the platform they want people more on it more so for them more people on it for the better for YouTube um, so it's, a, it's very much I think a, a win 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 in, in uh, the triple win here and they'll be able to present a great case to f- to broadcast partners when the next cycle comes up um, because they'll have all this incredible data uh, as part of this partnership.
1: I think it's also really interesting that broadcasters are taking the initiative and they're going to rights holders to say look we are coming to you with a pay tv distribution method or an ott distribution method we have a free to air distribution method and this is what we can do for your competition like it's the same with the sky bbc and wsl deal it's the fact that they're now beginning to team up rather than it everything being exclusive and everything being just hoarding not hoarding is probably not the right word but you know keeping it all for yourself and not being able to maybe show as many matches as if you have it across two different partners I think that in itself is a really interesting change in the industry and I don't think it's purely um, exclusive to women's sport because you know go back 10 years you would never have seen Sky share the final for the England for the cricket World Cup with Channel 4, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Like we're seeing co-exclusivity now um, and it seems to be a bit more of a growing trend. And I feel like women's sport is really benefiting from it because they need that free-to-air distribution. But then, like I said before, they're getting the money from the pay TV and OTT platforms as well. So actually in that sense, they've kind of come in at the right time where people are willing to work together in these partnerships.
0: Well, interesting. Nick and I have sort of talked about there's sort of, Three buckets of OTT where there's the the people that have so much money and are so good they can do whatever they want. That the NFLs, the NBA's, the Premier League should they ever decide to do that. Then there's the ones that are looking for the the reach play um, via different social media platforms where it's not about subscriptions; it's about simply just getting as many eyeballs as possible. And then we've talked about like the real niche sports that. Nick would argue, uh, arguably, should be charging more money because they're so niche at what they do. They have such a high affinity; people would pay for them. So, you know, what about perhaps for what we've seen with TikTok? Because you know, we're kind of we're probably talking about that tier two, where it's it's more about eyeballs. But we've seen TikTok do a number of partnerships. What they've done with Burnley, um, what they're currently doing with the the Euros right now. You know, what's the what's the role potentially of some of those social media platforms getting involved in helping to continue amplifying uh, women's sports?
1: Oh, it's absolutely huge. Like we're seeing on the one side, YouTube do it from a long form perspective, but TikTok, like we know that their demographic is that Gen Z hard to reach demographic. So we go back to that point earlier about can women's sport be that bridge? If you have a brand like TikTok, really go full force because the Euros isn't their first sponsorship this year. They're title sponsor of the women's six nations as well. So they are really going for this and they're really investing in it. And Even if on TikTok you're a consumer and you're only seeing the ads for it, it then becomes the norm to see that type of content flowing into your feed. Um, So I think they're going to have a really, really big role to play in all of this, Um, possibly bigger than some of the other social platforms, because apart from Instagram and YouTube, I mean, let's be honest, Facebook skews significantly older. Twitter, again, is significantly older and people... We've basically got this research from our sport consumer data to show what people are using different social media platforms for. And people tend to go to Twitter for like um, score updates or instant highlights. They're not necessarily going there specifically for sport content. That's where the YouTubes and TikToks can really cement their place in this world, I think.
2: And and TikTok is an example alongside YouTube, but equally alongside uh, LinkedIn even became a sponsor, I think, of the euros from the domestic level they're they're getting on board because they have a lot more flexibility and creativity uh, allowed to them than they would be allowed in the the men's game so another reason i suppose why sponsors and brands um, are becoming more and more attracted to the women's women's uh, sports arena is because there's more flexibility at the rights owner level to go okay well we can be more creative with what we can offer you guys as part of this and you can tell different stories whereas if you're partnering with um so the men's league you're going to have all sorts of issues to and uh hoops to jump through to be able to get any access to some of the athletes and and whatnot that you wouldn't get otherwise so um yeah that's just another 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 thought that came to mind when we're talking tiktok who's obviously as you said partners with the six nations
0: Absolutely. In terms of, you know, we touched on it just a little bit, but we sort of talked about sort of trends that are being debunked. You know, what are some of the things, you know, whether we're talking about the broadcast sponsorship, you know, that people that you, you basically said there's, there's data there to, to disprove some of these things. You know, we, we touched a little bit, but, you know, what are the, some of the other things that you, you'd you want to, for anyone listening out there that maybe has got some preconceived notions about women's sports, you know, what, what can you say that, you know, you've got that data for to say, well, actually, not so fast, you know?
1: Well, I think from a audience perspective, you know, like people, I think people still put women's sport in this bucket that it's really niche um, and it's... A really small audience base but actually just from all the WSL data this year the Champions League data that we've seen this year and actually if we go outside of Europe if you go to countries like Australia and the US the audiences for women's sport are huge you know we're talking WNBA we're talking the US um, women's soccer team in Australia they were really really clever early doors and I think it was either the Women's AFL or the Women's Big Bash. In the first season, they basically gave away really cheap and free tickets to the actual live event. And it was their way of making sure that people became fans by going and seeing it. And now they're really reaping the benefits of it. So even if we take away some of our like tunnel vision away from Europe, across the world this isn't this is a phenomena that is rising and rising india women's cricket is doing huge and on the myth side of it it's all the stuff around what people think the audience is people think they're going to be people who only watch on free to air who are only as we said before women but actually these are just our everyday sports fans and as nick has mentioned you know it could be a more cost-effective way of reaching these sports fans And we now have three, four, five years worth of information to show how the interest levels are growing, how their propensity to purchase is growing, how demographics are changing in amongst this. Um, So if I was a brand or a broadcaster, I'd actually be really excited to interrogate some of this data that the broadcaster, the rights holders will definitely have on these sports that are growing. Um, It's just a really... Rich um, area, but having said that, it's still in its infancy enough that you could probably get in and make a substantial difference within it.
0: In terms of looking forward, you know, we've talked about there are we're still in our infancy. There's still we've we're seeing early signs of success um, with different partnerships have taken place. But but looking forward to the future, what is perhaps the next? steps in terms of a strategy. They're starting to get some of that initial reach. There's people tuning in free to air. But for women's sports to take that next step, because one of the things we've talked about quite a bit is sort of the fragmentation and the expensiveness it costs for rights, that if you think of sports as a pie, there's only it, so much of it to get split around. More and more of it is going to the top tier properties, and then it's kind of a fight for for what's remaining. We're seeing this positivity grow. What perhaps is the next couple of years, do you think, in your opinion, got to look like for women's sports to continue to carve out a larger and larger portion of that? Is it continuing to be sort of social pressure? The broadcasters and uh, brands need to keep making these decisions irregardless of, you know, the financial side. Do is it on us as fans to make sure we're tuning in, to make sure our voice is heard, to say, hey, we really do care about this? you know, what are kind of maybe the next steps or some of the important milestones you think need to be hit or rights holders, broadcasters, brands need to be thinking of to make sure that this momentum continues to grow?
1: I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. I think it's fans where it's going to be a really big area because money talks at the end of the day. So the more eyeballs that are on a property, the more footfall that is at a match day, the more broadcasters will start taking notice the more brands will start taking notice because ultimately I know that people say that there is a social element to this and people are getting involved because it's the right thing to do but we do have to understand that a lot of these corporations are just our corporations at the end of the day and they'll be looking at that bottom line um so as long as fans make sure that they are getting behind it and watching as much as they can, getting to as many live games. And, you know, it's not, if you're comparing um, apples for apples, I used to have an Arsenal season ticket and it was ludicrously expensive compared to what you can go and watch a WSL match for. Um, So just being able to actually go out and watch live sport in an economy where there is a cost of living crisis It could. it's a win-win situation for both the fan and the rights holder. My only concern really, I guess, with um, women's sport is maybe it's come in slightly a bit too late in the whole sport ecosystem because we saw that huge boom in the early noughties where rights values just went crazy because you had the competition between BT and Sky. And now when actually you're looking at the trends... There isn't as much money in sport, or if there is, it's going to be reserved for a lot of those tier one sports. So, women's sport is really going to have to show its worth in all of this. And that social element of it, I think, is going to be a really big part of that. Um, I'm really hoping that's just the pessimist in me because. You know, we've got Viaplay launching in the UK later this year. DAZN might still make an entry into the UK. So the more competitors that we have in the market, the more likely that the rights are going to go up. So if I was a women's sport rights holder at the moment, I'll be keeping an eye on that. And I would be going and speaking to some of these new platforms that we think are going to be launching and get those co- like competitive pressures up. So you can then go to the likes of Sky and BBC, etc. and say, hey, Viaplay are going to come in and they're going to make a bigger bid. If you want this, you need to pay more. So that's how I would be thinking about it over the next couple of years at the moment.
2: I do feel like generally uh, women's sports just has to create its own path that is different to what we've seen happen before because of some of the points that you've made now where um, but the rights marketplace is, is a lot it's a, it's a different ballgame to what it used to be, um, but there's more opportunities for different places for your content to be held and discovered. And, and who knows what things like, uh, firstly, things like fast channel development might play as a role because normal people will need more content through streaming, different streaming channels. Maybe that means at least from a discoverability perspective, there's going to be new opportunities coming for for women's sports and other sports properties as well who, who are, you know, live sports is, is still seen as, the best live entertainment uh, on TV, even though it's not generating the rights, uh, rights revenues across the breadth of sports, it's still definitely that hook. And even things like uh, I'm interested to see what happens with things like betting. You know, in terms of again that flexibility that women's sports has, perhaps with its rights, maybe they might look to other ways to commercialise that don't follow those traditional lines of. Broadcast revenue first, then sponsorship revenue, and then and then the, the subsidiary stuff. Maybe they could partner with betting, or they could find other ways of fulfilling that pie other than just the traditional. Because they are starting in a a much they're, they're much more at an earlier stage in their life cycle, I suppose.
0: Well, that was something I was thinking of, Nick, that you mentioned was around the the, the gambling side, the gamification side. Because for me, as a sports fan, there are certain. Sporting events. I will watch I have no personal interest in other than I've got some sort of fantasy game involved There's some sort of bet involved and this is an interesting conversation Nick We've had about is betting actually killing fandom because are people actually watching because they they actually support it or because they've got some Sort of something on the lines for but at the end of the day Does it really matter if what we're trying to do is grow the reach? I think even something like uh the NBA 2K video game is now going to have uh, women's players featured. I think this last version of FIFA was the first time that they had women's teams on there. It's just sort of that normalization, getting people to experience it and connect with it in a way that they probably didn't before. I I definitely think there's got to be some sort of angle of including that into the broader sort of media space.
1: Yeah, I think on the gamification side of it, I definitely agree. The bashing side of it, I think women's sport would probably... If I was them, I'd be a bit careful because in the UK, in the US, it's obviously picking up loads and there's loads around it. But in the UK, I think there is still a social concern there about the impact that betting has on people's lives. And if I was in women's sport, one of my biggest things is we are a force for good. We are a force for social change. I don't think I would want to touch betting if I was honestly them because I would not be surprised if in the next decade there is a government initiative to remove betting from sport just because of the implications it has on people's lives. Um, So that is probably one that I wouldn't touch. But Fast Channels, I think, is a really interesting one because cost of living crisis, what are people going to start getting rid of? Are they going to start getting rid of their entertainment packages, their pay TV, streaming services? Fast Channels offers a way cheaper alternative. To be able to view this content, so I think actually that's a really, really uh, that could be a really interesting route for them to go down.
2: I do, I do agree with you. I'd be pretty surprised to see uh, the women's sports uh, world to go double down into betting in a way that men's sports hasn't. Um, But I guess if that balancing act of you know, if the prospect was okay, we're able to generate this revenue, which we could invest into, and they could come up with a strategy to make get make value from it. It has to be discussed, but I, I think I'm with you that it's uh, probably more unlikely than likely that they would uh, we would see that really come to play, particularly what we've seen now in terms of some of the new regulations coming in mm-hmm. place in the UK. The US, I'm not too <laughs> sure. Uh, who knows with the US? The US is on a completely different journey around betting. Uh, when we've been over there, everyone's all guns blazing, super excited and counting the dollar signs. So uh, they, they will be a long way before they start putting any, any barriers up, I'd imagine.
0: Yeah, I think this—the last thing for me that I think is a bit interesting—when we were at the OTT USA Summit, you know, th- we had a couple of sessions that were around specifically um, women's sports, and what kept coming up was storytelling. And I think one of the other myths that comes up now, and this is kind of on a personal level for me, you know, being the the head coach of the GB Women's National American Football Team, is you always hear it, it's a second tier of sport it's not as good as the men's and there's this argument i, I don't want to watch a sport that you know no one people don't dunk in the wmba the way they dunk in the nba it's a low i don't want to watch it but the reality is like yes we we like to watch competitive sport we like to see the best of the best do but ultimately for me like the reason we watch sport the ones that they make movies about are the stories it's the ones that they've got these incredible storylines the characters behind them the adversities that they've overcome And I think for me with like the women's sports side, there's that whole element that probably isn't getting played enough of. And I think this idea that people won't tune in because it's not the, you know, they're not as fast or they're not as big actually isn't the issue. It's the issue is we're not necessarily telling the stories. I think if more people had exposure to the stories that were going on, like that's one of those other myths that has sort of hit me more personally now that I've been, I guess, more of a engaged with it. But I think that side of it, Definitely needs to be played up, and I think. But I think ultimately, Chris, actions speak louder than words, right? And
2: um you know, looking at the numbers I picked up earlier, were that the the, the opening match for the Euro twenty twenty two, the women's that just kicked off in England, generated nearly four and a half million viewers, a peak audience of three point seven, and and this number was really interesting. A further seven hundred and fifty thousand on streaming uh, for the platform, so nearly four and a half million views. Uh, for the opening match. That's pretty impressive Impressive numbers in, in, in any state. Uh, and actually, speak aloud in the words, if the numbers are coming through like that, then we know that it's people are tuning in, people are ready to watch. Um, and I think what this, again, it, we're going to constantly say this. I think when you have big events, big major events like um, the Euros coming along, they're going to be catalysts for more and more interest, more and more awareness, especially when they're backed by a public broadcaster where BBC is broadcasting all 31 games. On all its major channels, so that's incredible exposure for any sports property to receive, not just not just the women's uh, women's football.
1: Yeah, it shows how valuable the BBC really is, doesn't it? Um, I actually on on your point, Chris, about needing to tell that story, it's where content strands like sport documentaries come in. Because why has the, why has Formula One had a resurgence? Because of Drive to Survive. Because people got close to the athletes and the train principles. They got the emotive side of it. They understood, like you said, the journeys. Like we've had all these really young drivers come through. I don't know who Esteban Ocon was a year ago. I then watched four seasons of Drive to Survive and this weekend I was like, oh my god, he had such a good race. That's kind of where you know women's Women's football, women's sport, it's going to be a gold mine for those types of things. And a lot of streaming services, like Amazon, is putting so much money into its own sport documentaries at the moment. So it's not just the big services doing it, Sky's doing loads of originals as well. So, as well as the platforms, you then have social media platforms like TikTok, who they can do it on a bit of a smaller scale and get you closer. So, you're getting to those stories in so many different ways. Um, but it will take like a bit of a collective effort for people to actually say this is the interesting thing this is what we need to get out there.
2: I think one last thing to to all of that I'd say is what would be really interesting to see is how quickly the women's sports as a collective becomes truly professional because Mm -hmm. you're seeing all this money come from private equity and private institutions into the men's game right now and investing in largely proven and established sports properties with a, a mature audience and um, a mature brand and, and fixed and existing revenues, how long until we see that private equity focus shift into different women's sports properties um, that might be at a much earlier phase in their journey and throw some capital behind them and see how quickly they can rise. With that investment into storytelling, um, doubling down on social social media awareness and reach, and and, and their own their own narrative and their storytelling. Not to mention what they can do with those commercial and broadcast partners.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Something uh, we've talked about. Something we'll keep an eye on. And I agree. I think the professionalization will be a big aspect of that. But you know, Manal, it's been wonderful having you on. Uh, I guess you know. Is there anything else you want to say to the people? Because what I keep saying, at least from a coaching perspective, is get on the bandwagon now before we leave you behind. You know, what would be your message to anyone that's not already on this bandwagon? You know, what's what's your your, you know, your exit statement for them?
1: I would say get yourself to a live women's sport event next season, be it football, be it rugby, you know, we, we talk about those types of sports and those people would have seen women's tennis and they don't even bat an eyelid. It's like, oh yeah, Serena Williams, she's playing a great game. Take that mindset, go and watch something. And I promise you, you will be converted. Take your family along, take your friends along. And it's just a great atmosphere. Um And like you said, it is growing and growing and growing. And you don't want to be that person who all your friends are saying in three years time, didn't you say this was going to be terrible and it wasn't going to go anywhere? Don't be that person.
0: (laughs) Definitely don't be that person. Well, thank you. Manal. it's a, it's a pleasure as always to speak to you, Nick. Thanks for joining once again and everyone, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Like I said, this is just one part of the women's sports week of all the content that's going out across the channel. So please make sure you're tuning into sports pro media, checking out the various different podcast editorial content that's being put out there on a very important topic. Thanks. Before you go, myself and Nick would just like to thank you for tuning into this episode of Streamtime. If you found the episode insightful, please make sure you like and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to. As a growing podcast, we'd greatly appreciate your support in sharing or writing a review. Ultimately, we want this podcast to not only entertain you, but also hopefully help you navigate the digital sports landscape. If you have any feedback on previous episodes or any topics and speakers you'd like to hear from in the future, please don't hesitate to reach out. You can find myself and Nick Meacham on LinkedIn or on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at SportsProChris1. Nick can be found at SportsProNick. Of course, if you want to stay fully up to date on the sports business news cycle, please make sure to visit the Sports Pro Media website or sign up to one of our several newsletters to make sure you don't miss anything. Once again, thank you, and we look forward to you joining us next week on the Streamtime podcast.